How many of you, strange question time, how many of you enjoy bacon? Does anyone not enjoy bacon? I see a few hands. Like, like bacon from a pig. Oh, okay. <laughs> Those of you that raise your hands that you don't enjoy it, we'll have a healing line that we'll pray for your tongue. I like bacon. I like, I like all kinds of meat. Yes, thank you. Get the right spelling up there and people may understand. So on these question cards, um, you can find these in the back on the table. And on the inside it says, Biblical answers to your everyday life questions. You know, not every question that we have, do we have a direct Bible verse to speak to the question. And so, many questions do have Bible verses. We're just unaware of them maybe. Or maybe... It's in a way that we haven't thought of. You know, the principles that are in the Word will apply to many areas that they don't directly speak to, right? And so, uh, the questions that we encourage you to ask on these cards are questions that uh, maybe you're curious about. Not every question that comes through gets answered from the pulpit. Um, On those little squares, you can mark to stay anonymous, and uh, even though the question is public, that your name be anonymous, or you can mark on theirs that you can be shared publicly. Well, recently, um, we got two questions. Actually, maybe it's more than two, but two cards in. And so I wanted to take the time to talk about these because they're uh, humorous questions, but even more than that, uh, some people have, really do have a legitimate wondering about it, and maybe they've not taken the time to study it. You know, you might even put a question in that you believe you know the answer to, but it might benefit others to hear that question asked and hear that question answered. And so, uh, the question here is, what's up with bacon? And uh, they made an observation that how pigs always have their heads down. You ever notice a pig? They're always, you know, off in the dirt. Their head is down. And uh, under the Old Testament law, they weren't supposed to eat animals that were unclean. And... um, much to their grief and consternation, pigs were a part of that unclean family. Now, maybe they didn't have grief about it because maybe they didn't know how good they were. <clears throat> but at any rate, they were not to be eating pork, right? As well as all kinds of uh, things, other animals as well, but even things out of the sea that were considered un- unclean, you know, like shrimp or clams. Or, you know, things that were of that nature that many of us enjoy today, but they wouldn't eat back then. Since we just took the offering, do any of you know why the, uh, the married clam couple would not give an offering to the Lord? The married clam couple. They wouldn't give an offering to the Lord because they were just too shellfish. The goldfish, on the other hand. So what about pork? What about pigs? You know, Jesus, when He went across the sea and uh, He hunted down, I say hunted down, he, he made great effort to reach the other side of the sea. Remember the, the storm that came? You know, I didn't even say that right. 
He deliberately said, we're going to the other side. The enemy made great effort to stop him. Jesus rose up, rebuked the storm. Peace was prevailed and they reached the other side. Once they reached the other side, the demon-possessed man, some translations say there were several of them, came up. And in the end, Jesus delivers them of the legion of demons that are in them. And those demons wanted to inhabit flesh. And they asked permission to uh, go somewhere else and not be sent off into a dry, arid place. And so permission was granted to them, and they went and inhabited, what was it, 2,000 pigs? And those pigs ran down off of a steep bank and into the sea and drowned. The next thing that you see in that story is, um, the man is delivered, he's in his right mind, and the people of the town, I suppose it was their hogs that all drowned, they showed up and wanted Jesus to leave. Please leave. Don't destroy any more of our livelihood. And so you might ask the question, because that's one of the things that is implied here, is, you know, those pigs all ran and, and, and drowned, however many thousand of them it was, and um, what does the Lord have against pigs? You know, they weren't supposed to eat them. Then they allow the devils to possess them. And um, if you understand the context, they were breaking the law by having those swine. They weren't even supposed to have them. And so the reason that permission would be given to enter a place where they were breaking the law, that makes, starts to begin to make sense, doesn't it? It wasn't like it entered a bunch of sheep, something they were allowed to have. And um, the people wanted him to leave. Well, the, the, the man that had been freed, he stayed behind and went around to all the towns teaching and telling about what had happened to him, how he'd been free. And the next time Jesus shows up to those towns, amazing miracles happen because of the teaching that had taken place. They were no longer asking him to leave. And um, we know that Jesus wasn't wasteful, right? When He fed the 5,000, the 12 baskets were left over. I don't believe those 12 baskets were left over to just sit behind and rot in the sun. You know, they, someone carried them home. I like to think that maybe that little boy that gave his lunch took them home. And he was blessed. We don't have that in the story, who took the, who took the 12 baskets. But certainly they were collected, not just dumped out, is what the Word says. So we know that God is not a God of waste because Jesus um, demonstrated the character of God in His earthly walk. So while He's not a God of waste, yet thousands of pigs were just seemingly wasted. So what's with bacon? Let's take a look at some Scriptures because this will help you on the shellfish as well. 1 Timothy you know, I believe one of the reasons they weren't supposed to eat pork is because pork has been proven scientifically to not be as healthy for you as some of the other meats. That doesn't mean you can't enjoy it. It's just if you put um, meat underneath a microscope and you magnify that like 10,000 times and you put beef underneath or chicken underneath a microscope, it will have much less parasites climbing on it than what a piece of pork will. They have a lot more parasites climbing on it. And uh, so enjoy the bacon the next time you're chewing on it. That's where the flavor comes from, I think. 
But in 1 Timothy <laughs> chapter 4, let's start reading in verse 1. Now just because we're laughing, don't lose sight that we're, there's some truth here that we're going to get a hold of. And whether you go away from here today or not saying I'm going to eat bacon or I'm not going to eat bacon, it, it doesn't matter to me. Just hear and understand what the Word says about these things <clears throat> in our new covenant that we live in. So here Paul is writing to Pastor Timothy and giving him instructions on how he should teach and speak. And he says here in chapter 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits. So what kind of spirits? Well, lying spirits. Spirits that deceive. And the teachings of demons. Wow, that escalated quickly, didn't it? Going from latter times to deceiving demons that are teaching. Through, here's how they come, through the hypocrisy of liars whose conscience are seared. They, here's some of the things they teach. These teachings of demons. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. So there are those that do not know the truth. And they're deceived on this issue. He goes on, he says, for everything. Someone say everything. Everything created by God is good. Say good. And nothing, say nothing, should be rejected if, here's the qualifier, Nothing should be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Since it is sanctified, that means set apart, by the Word of God and by prayer. This is why we take a moment and we thank the Lord for our food before we eat it. It is sanctified. We're receiving it with thanksgiving. You don't have to pray around the world before you eat. But just thank the Lord. Even if it's just as simple as saying, thank you, Lord, for this ham sandwich. Right? You, you thank the Lord for what you're about to eat. If you receive it with thanksgiving, it is sanctified, it is good, and it is meat to eat. Well, I'm going to read verse 4 again. For everything, so that's nothing left out, created by God is good. Well, created by God is the qualifier, right? For everything created by God is good. Nothing should be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the Word of God and by prayer. Then he goes on and says, you're going to be, you're going to, if you point these things out, you'll be a good servant of the Lord, nourished by faith. See, faith feeds you. So there we have one scripture, but we know that we would like more than one when we look at these types of things. So let's look at another one, Acts chapter 10. What about bacon? So here in Acts chapter 10, and you know the story of Cornelius. He is the centurion, and uh, he was a devout man. He feared God. You can find that in the first couple of verses. He did alms for the poor, and he was a righteous man. Um, and so he, an angel of the Lord, he has a vision an angel shows up and tells him, send men down to this certain address in this other town and you'll find a man there named Peter staying at this certain house 
and ask him to come. And so he does that. He sends his guys. And uh, in the meantime, at this house where these guys are headed towards, Peter is up on the house roof. And let's begin reading uh, in verse 9. It says, The next day as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the housetop at about noon. Then he became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, he went into a visionary state, a trance, some translations say. And in the Spirit, okay, this would be the gift of discerning of spirits, if you're wondering what, uh, what this is. In the Spirit, he saw heaven opened and an object coming down that resembled a large sheet being lowered to the earth by its four corners. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything common and unclean. So he has never eaten pork, right? But their law forbade it. And so he was keeping the law. Verse 15, again a second time a voice said to him, What God has made clean you must not call common. This happened three times and the object was taken up into heaven. While Peter was deeply perplexed about, what the, about the vision that he had seen, what it might mean, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions to Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. And um, the Lord then said, you know, showed Peter that he wanted Peter to go with these men, which was also forbidden by the law, to go with them back to a Gentile's house, the centurion's house. And this is when the gospel was first preached to the Gentiles. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they, this is uh, about 10 years after the uh, day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit had come upon everyone. About 10 years after the initial uh, infilling of the Holy Spirit. Now, this here is interesting because if we back up and we read right here, the Lord sends down every animal. What does it say? All the reptiles of the earth. I mean, that even includes snakes. Some people say snakes taste like chicken. I don't know. Um, but animals that you may not want to eat were in this sheet, is my point. And the Lord says to him, don't call unclean what I have made clean. Now, if he did not expect Peter to apply this also to the animals in the sheet, he would not have had them be in that sheet. Right? So certainly there had to be some squealing in that sheet as well since every four-footed animal was in there. That's a big sheet, isn't it? All the animals, all the reptiles, and all the birds. There's some birds I wouldn't want to eat. Starlings? I don't know. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You know, all the requirements of the law are fulfilled in one law, the law of love. If you do not eat pork because of Old Testament law, then you better not mix threads in your garments either, of different types of threads woven together. They weren't allowed to do that. 
They weren't allowed to do all kinds of things if you just read it in context of the law given to them. And so we don't pick and choose from the Old Testament law. We understand that the one law, the law of love, if you'll act in that one, you won't violate the other laws. Laws of, take the Ten Commandments for example. If you'll walk in love, you won't violate the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 10, let's look over at verse 25. The question had, uh, well, in verse, in verse 23, let's start there. Everything is permissible was a saying from back then. And so he quotes this saying. He says, but not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible, that's the saying, but not everything builds up. No one should seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. A little while ago, I was in Lebanon and we went out to a, one of the world-renowned um, heritage sites. And uh, it's a temple that has been um, in large part preserved and some parts of it have been reconstructed. And it was a temple to Baal that they had back then. And they had all these different, they showed it was massive. The idol, uh, the, the, the animal sacrifice that would take place there. And they showed all these different altars of, of where the animals would be sacrificed on. They showed the troughs of blood, where the blood would run to underground holding areas that were like markets then that you would walk through, this underground uh, cavern market. And uh, then down in there, they would have meat markets as well. So the animals that were sacrificed. To the, to the idols are killed, they didn't necessarily burn them, then they would offer them down in the meat market at discounted prices. Because there was a lot of them, they had a lot of not only uh, blood, you could buy blood down there, but you could also buy this meat from the idol market. It was usually cheaper than from the normal market, so some people, this is according to the historians there, a lot of people like to come there and get the cheaper meat. Some people would come and order the meat because they believed that it had blessing on it because it was sacrificed to their God, right? Uh, to their God being a demon. But they didn't know the truth. Well, he's answering the question, should you uh, eat meat that was coming from... So, let's just start in verse 25 again. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market. Asking... Sometimes some of that meat would make it out of the idle meat market and make it into the regular market. They may or may not label it saying where it came from. So eat everything that's sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. That includes all kinds of meat, right? The earth is the Lord and all that is in it. If one of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that's set before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this food is offered to an idol, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for conscience' sake. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanks, why am I slandered because of something for which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, 
do everything for God's glory. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God. Just as I also try to please all people in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. So here we see that the issue of eating meat could offend somebody. And in that case, if it's going to be offensive to the person that you're, you're talking to, then don't eat it. There's more direction given to us in Romans 14. I'll bet there's not a person here that expected to come and hear about bacon <laughs> on Pentecost Sunday. In Romans 14, why am I being diligent on this? Because it's important that we be able to answer questions from the Word. In Romans 14, verse 1, Accept anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about doubtful issues. One person believes he may eat anything, but one who is weak eats only vegetables. So you vegetarians, you're weak. (laughs) I'm teasing you. Verse 3, The one who eats must not look down on the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat must not criticize or judge the one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge or criticize another's household slave? See, we're the Lord's slaves. Before his own Lord he stands or falls, and stand he will. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person considers one day to be above another day. Someone else considers every day to be the same. Should we, should we gather on Saturday, the Sabbath, to worship the Lord, or should we gather on Sunday to worship the Lord? Well, what about other holy days and feast days from the Old Testament? You know, which one of those should we observe or not observe? Here he's answering the question, one person considers one day to be above another day, like many of you consider Sunday to be above the other days of the week. Someone else considers every day to be the same. Well, if you, if you consider every day holy to the Lord, that just brings a great adjustment to it, doesn't it? What does that have to do with me? Because the same principle applies. You'll see. He, he begins to talk about it soon. Each one must be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day observes it to the Lord. But whoever does not observe the day, it is to the Lord that he does not observe it. Whoever eats, eats to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is to the Lord that he does not eat, yet he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. So, whatever we do, it needs to be done in faith unto the Lord. You think Saturday is better than Sunday? Well, then worship on Saturday. I don't care. You think Sunday is better than Saturday? Then worship on Sunday. You think meat, beef is better than pork? You know, I don't care. Do it unto the Lord. Give Him thanks. You know, if, you'll, if we keep reading, He continues to answer this question and give you the how it should be answered all the way down through chapter 15 and verse 7. So let's jump, let's jump ahead to verse 13. 
Uh, in between here, he's saying that we're going to all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but don't you be judging each other about these things. Verse 13, therefore, let us no longer judge one another, but instead decide not to put a stumbling block or pitfall in your brother's way. I know and I am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. There is your answer for pork or shrimp or, you know, clams or, God forbid, oysters or, I tried those once. I think, I think it was Gene that convinced me to try those, I don't know. I've forgiven him. Figured if I want to eat snot, I'll just, you know. He probably convinced me to because he didn't like him himself and he wanted to watch. I don't know. But the point is, what? I am persuaded, Paul says, that by the Lord Jesus. Oh, so it's a divine persuasion that nothing is unclean in and of itself. So you shouldn't ever be sitting in judgment of someone else for what they eat or don't eat. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one, it is unclean. Understand? For if your brother is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. By by what you eat, do not destroy that one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves the Messiah in this way is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, we must pursue. That means this is the thing you're going to chase. This is the thing you're going to make great effort to go after. What promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. That, that goes for the person that's eating and that goes for the person who's tempted to judge. Do not tear down each other because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong for a man to cause stumbling by what he eats. You know, we could talk about uh, alcohol right here, talk about wine here. There's um, some really strong opinions in the body of Christ about whether it's right or wrong to, to drink any wine. And I think, I believe the scripture is very, very clear on it. It very clearly says that we should not be drunk, right? Um, yet, he also tells us that, he told Timothy, drink wine for your stomach's sake. But he didn't tell him to be drunk, right? We have Jesus making wine for a bunch of drunk people. His first miracle. Go figure that one out. I have questions on that one I want to ask. How are you not enabling their whatever, you know, drunkenness? But the word, if you, some people say, oh, well, no, that doesn't mean they were drunk. Well, look it up. It says that most people bring out the best wine first, and after the people are drunk, is the, intoxicated is the word, they bring out the worst. But you've done it in reverse. Meaning you brought out the normal stuff and once they were drunk, you brought out the best. So, am I telling you that you should drink wine? No. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying you should not be drunk. That's the word's very, very clear on that. And, and when are you drunk? Well, when your mind is altered from what it would be if you hadn't had anything. Some people say, well, their wine back then wasn't strong enough to get drunk on. Really? 
then how come he says don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit? Clearly their wine was enough to get drunk on. So, would I drink wine in front of someone that would be offended by it? I better not. Right here, he's telling me, don't do that kind of thing. Don't hurt your neighbor by what you eat or what you drink. So don't flaunt your freedom. I'm going to start at verse 19 again. So then we must pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong for a man to cause stumbling by what he eats. It is a noble thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother stumble. Do you have faith? Keep it to yourself before God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And everything that is not from faith is sin. Now, we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weakness of those without strength and not to please ourselves. See, the strong person is the one who puts himself at sacrifice for the benefit of someone else. Verse 2, each one of us must please his neighbor for his good in order to build him up. For even the Messiah did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written before was written for our instruction so that through our endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we may have hope. Now, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you agreement with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with a united mind and voice. Therefore, accept one another. It doesn't say conform one another. Make them come to your line of thinking. It's not what it says. It says accept one another just as the Messiah also accepted you to the glory of God. So what about bacon? Well, it's clean if you receive it with thanksgiving. As unto the Lord. However, if you're sitting with someone that's going to be offended by your eating bacon, well, then save it until the next meal when they're not there. Now, the next question that was asked, I'm going to ask you to answer. Let's see what you say. I thought this was great. Is it right to wear... Does anyone have the Y'all Need Jesus t-shirt on today? There's usually about one every Sunday in here. I have one in my closet. You can buy them at Walmart. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Buy them at Walmart. As well as the one that just says Team Jesus on it. Is it right to wear Y'all Need Jesus t-shirts to a store like Lowe's when everyone else is wearing a mask and you're not? Y'all need Jesus. No mask. This question is asked by Barney. So, what do you guys think? How do we dis... Yes. John says yes. So, 
So scripturally, what are the principles in scripture? How would we answer this question? Healing. Healing. So tell, tell us what you mean by that. We are the light of the world, so part of preaching the gospel is the risen Savior, which has provided healing for all persons of the Christian law, which refer to all sicknesses and disease. So we would be in the movement of the Spirit of God, and that would be a testimony to them to see the healing power of God accompanying the gospel that we preach. So it could be an evangelism tool or an open door to everything that you just said. Could be. Colossians 3.23, do everything as under the Lord. But do it not as a prideful way to say, I don't need a mask. Do it humbly to share the message. What's the condition of your heart in wearing it? So the scripture quoted was Colossians, and do everything as unto the Lord. Not pridefully, but unto the Lord. Anyone else? God has not given us the spirit of fear, but the power of love and sound mind. And if somebody would approach you uh, with regards to Christianity, you're not wearing a mask, or whatever, but say we keep talking about fear and what it's causing and how we can have it causing it. I was going to wear that t-shirt today and I forgot to. <laughs> yes? I think it's uh, maybe personal choice, too. Like, I personally would not do that. That's just where I stand with it. I feel like maybe I'd be a little bit insulting. I'm not sure I would be communicating what I want to communicate, mm -hmm. especially if the owner of the store is personally asking, because you don't know, like, are the employees of that store friends? You don't know what kind of, what's going on behind the scenes. So for me personally, but if I saw somebody else, I wouldn't be too concerned about it. That's just me, you know. Mm-hmm. Personal choice? Where you're at spiritually? So it could, it could bring, open up a door for the opportunity to share Jesus. It could invite criticism. Well, Jesus would wear a mask. Why aren't you? And you think, I need Jesus, right? I mean, there's that side of it. But pretty much anything in the gospel will invite criticism. So that's not a deterrent, right? Anyone else? I say yes. Yes, you need to wear a mask. Not that, um, I mean, like I'm going to say, I don't believe that we need to, but if we are representing the body of Christ, our goal is not to help people walk in fear. My heart is to, if I'm public in a grocery store, or, you know, we were in Lowe's yesterday, and this guy had that t-shirt on. He had a mask, he was with his wife, and, uh, you know, we were walking with our mask down. He didn't say anything, you know, we were getting whatever. But the thing is, is what I believe is my heart is to um, not instill fear in the public that is already full of fear and share that in the presence of people. By wearing a mask, I'm, I don't want to feed their fear. However, you know, I'm wearing it and I'm, I don't have my mouth covered, you know, that's all right. Okay. So you should wear a mask. I should. Yeah. And I do. Mm -hmm. I think that there's no blanket answer to that question. Thank you. Because I think that in. You might wake up one day and, uh, you know, say you're a person that does not wear a mask and you might have a check, you know what, I'm not going to wear that t-shirt today and you ended up going to a store and, and 
follow the Holy Ghost. Yes. You're going to know who's going to see you today and what you're wearing and if that's going to trigger something that would just push Jesus away more to them or not. Not do it. Don't not wear it because of fear of what people are going to think. Just wear it or don't wear it based on peace on the inside. Yes. Very good. So, being spirit-led even involves your wardrobe. Right? What I, I Well, not every day, but I often will ask the Lord, what should I wear today? Sometimes I wear clothes I don't want to wear. And it's interesting because sometimes it's that day that someone will comment about the shirt I'm wearing. And it'll open up a conversation that if I wouldn't, I don't like that color on me even. Right? I just wouldn't choose that shirt. So if we're spirit-led, he might one day have you go with no mask and that shirt on and the next day with a completely different, right? And so I think really, um, if there can be a blanket answer, it would be this. Something that Brother Keith Moore says a lot. The answer to a million and one questions is be led. Be led by the Spirit of God. On masks, if you find yourself at a store that someone insists you wear a mask, you're going to walk in love. You're going to walk in peace. Don't argue with them. You can kindly tell them why you weren't wearing one, but don't argue with them. Remember, you're an ambassador of the Lord Jesus. And you don't have to enter into fear you're completely free. They're free to tell you that you can't come in unless you have, you know, a green bill cap on. Just like they can on this whole mask thing. Um, but you're also free to say, well, I'm going to go shop somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> Barney, did that answer your question thoroughly? Yeah? yeah? I thought you it wasn't a, an answer that I I needed to go to Lowe's that Friday night just for that gift card I wanted to use. And uh, I went to the closet and said, I'm going to make sure you all need Jesus. And then there was a check oh, Don't put that on because I've run into people these last six weeks where, oh yeah, I used to think I was invincible too and I don't have to have no fear. And I just didn't want that to bring a message across like a prize thing, like, yeah, look at me. Well, what was neat is Bob went with me is we didn't even have it around our neck, we didn't take nothing. And uh, when I got close to people, it came down off their face, other people, it came down off their nose, and even the cash register had pulled it down off too. So I brought freedom to other people that, I mean, I thought I brought freedom to other people that they didn't have to wear a mask, but we had a good time there, yeah. even without the shirt on. You know, the interesting thing about that particular shirt, because like I said, I have it hanging in my closet. The only, um, I've only worn it, I think, to church and maybe one time somewhere else. Because every time I was going to wear the, that shirt out in public, I always had a check that I shouldn't wear that shirt. Because it comes across as, um, just the sense I had was that it comes across um, more accusatory than inviting. And, um, but there may be a day that you should wear that shirt, right? As, because that's, someone will receive a message better like that. So I've found it interesting that the place I had the release to wear it was to church. 
So y'all need Jesus. We, we do. We need him. If you wear it out in public, I'm not criticizing you at all. Okay, that, that Team Jesus shirt, now that one, I've had you know, the freedom to wear everywhere. And, um, but yes, do be spirit-led in your, in your uh, choice of clothing. We're going to close soon, but we're going to cover a few more things first. <clears throat> you know, soon is a relative term. thousand years is like a day to Jesus. Last week, if you were here with us, I want to uh, shine the light on something of honor. And um, I was reading in Acts, I think maybe chapter 20, somewhere in Acts, and um, reading about how that Paul was saying, after I leave you, the church, there's going to be ravaging wolves come in and, and you know, not spare the flock. And um, I made a joke about Governor Wolf coming in, and uh, it was funny. There was a cheap laugh. Most people laughed, I think. And um, but afterwards, someone come to me, and they felt like that wasn't honorable. And so, you know, I don't want to ever do anything that has even a hint or could appear dishonorable. All right, so. I'm going to put a guard on my mouth not to do something that someone could say, well, that's dishonorable. Does that mean that we cannot or that I will not actively oppose what Governor Wolf is doing? That I will do everything I can to see to it that our representatives hold him accountable to the laws that he's breaking? He's become lawless. He needs to be removed from office. But, you know, the position that he holds is a God-anointed position, That doesn't mean that he's personally anointed, but he sits in the office of governor, right? And um, just like the husband or the, the, the father in a home could be an honorable, respectful person or completely dishonorable person, his position, his office is one that is ordained by the Lord even if he individually is not. Are you understanding the difference? There's good fathers, there's bad fathers, there's good governors, there's bad governors. And um, currently, it is my belief that Governor Wolf is being a dishonorable governor to our Constitution. And so, the Constitution is the highest civil form of law that we have in this land. And so, that is what he needs to submit to, just like the rest of us do. And so... We have lawmakers that are dealing with this and trying to get things righted. However, just because someone is, uh, just because you, see, you can treat someone respectfully without respecting them. I don't have respect for many people, but that doesn't mean I should treat them disrespectfully, right? This goes for in homes. You may not feel, in fact, your spouse may not be, deserve respect, right? They may be a rascal but you can still treat them respectfully and honorably. And so the same way goes for us and with our governor. So, so I ask your forgiveness. Um, I don't want to offend anyone with uh, an attempt at cheap humor, right? And uh, I am grateful that uh, there is forgiveness and repentance for, for all, that we can uh, continue to lift him up in prayer 
And uh, my prayer has been this, that he, that he either repent and change or be removed from office. One of the two. But he can't stay there and keep walking in unrighteousness. Go with me to Second Chronicles <clears throat> chapter 7. And even if we've had fun with Governor Wolf's name, did you know that we have some wolves with us? They have been, uh, they have been uh, uh, changed into sheep. Isn't that amazing? God can do anything. So good to have you guys with us this morning. Bless you. Second Chronicles 7. The Lord is speaking to Solomon in verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. If I close the sky so there is no rain, in the Old Testament that's referred to as a brass sky, if I close the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshoppers to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Turn from their evil ways means repent. That's what repent means. It means to change. Going one direction, you turn and go a different direction. So if you're going to repent about something, that means you are going to do it differently. That doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to have tears. You might. But you will do differently than you did prior this scripture here, I wanted to read it because it is often mis... I don't know if I should say misquoted. It is misapplied to the body of Christ today. And, um, you know, it doesn't take long scrolling down a Facebook feed at any given time in any given season. And you'll see this verse quoted as my church. The church, they just need to humble themselves. They need to repent. They need to pray and seek my face. And then the Lord would hear from heaven and heal their land. Well, I have several questions about this. Well, how long do they need to repent? Nowhere in the New Testament is the church, is the individual told to repent if they are not in sin. They are only told to repent to change if they are in sin. And you are unable to repent for your neighbor. If that were possible, everyone would go to heaven because I'd just repent for the whole earth right now and the thing is done. You can't repent for your neighbor. You can repent for you. You can change for you. I mean, how would you change for your neighbor? Your neighbor's the one committing the sin, but you're the one doing the changing. How's that going to work? It just flies in the face of logic. So, this verse has value to us, certainly. And if you are walking in evil ways, then yes, repent, change. Come out of those evil ways. Unfortunately, many believers do walk in evil ways. They do need to repent. So if there's something in your life that you need to change from, do so. I urge you, do so. However, the rest of us, if, if there's not something that you're doing in your life, then the repent part doesn't apply to you. 
The humble yourself, the pray part does. We still do that. But you know, we don't bring change to the earth by crying and weeping and wailing over other people's sins. Because a lot of times that is how people will apply this Scripture. Because they know we can't change for other people, so at least we'll just say we're sorry for other people. Well, how does that do anything? You know, in this context, the Lord is saying, if I am judging you, if you are under my judgment as a nation, as a nation, it's because you have forsaken me. And that you need to turn from your evil ways and come back to me. And you see this walked out in the Old Testament again and again and again. Judgment would come. They would turn back to the Lord. And then He would heal their land. He would restore them. All these things. And then they would fall away collectively as a group. And what's fascinating is that under the new covenant that we live under, where we have direct access to the throne room of God, you and I, we don't have to go through another individual. We don't have to go through any priest except our high priest, Jesus. So we have direct access. So we also have direct accountability for our own actions. And we are told that there are certain things that we need to do. Yes, humbling ourselves is one of them. What, what is a humble person? It's a person who knows who they are without Christ and who they are with Christ. A humble person can be bold as a lion and loud as one. A humble person can also be quiet and unseen. A humble person knows that in and of myself, I am nothing. But with the Lord, I can do all things. Through Christ, I can do all things. Who strengthens me? And so you're willing to tackle what some people would say, wow, that's even dumb, right? Because you know the Lord is with you. So you will humble yourself, but you will pray. You will seek His face. And as you draw near to the Lord... He will draw near to you. You ask the Lord, how can I make a difference? You know, do pray for our governors, for our leaders, for, do pray for our senators, our representatives, for our judges, for our president. You know, do pray for our mayors of our cities and, and on and on and on. Because your prayers can make a difference. The prayer of faith that Elisha prayed made so that it did not rain for three years. His prayer affected the weather over an entire region for three years. And then he prayed for rain, not because he saw a cloud. It was because of his prayer that the cloud formed out there and started coming in from sea. And it rained. And so your prayer of faith, can it avails much. It makes great power available. And so we need to pray for our nation. We need to pray for the body of Christ, that we would rise up together in unity on this thing. But you know, there's more than just pray. There's also work that needs to be done. The work of righteousness by the believer rising up and being the salt of the earth. Being salt and light in this earth. And so... The work of righteousness. You know, we are called ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation, being reconciled back to the Lord. We are told to be witnesses, to tell the good news, 
Say what Jesus has done for you. These are all part of the things that you and I are supposed to be doing after you have repented from the sin you were walking in. And if you weren't walking in sin, and you're walking in the light as He is in the light, then there's no repentance needed. There is prayer needed. There is works of righteousness needed. There is being the hands and feet of Jesus needed. And you can affect great change in the planet this way. Serving others. Treating them as better than yourself. With a smile. So does that mean that you shouldn't use this scripture verse anymore? It's a great, great verse for someone that's backslidden or churches that are walking in sin. Churches that have abandoned scripture. Right? Judgment starts in the house of God is what, what Paul said. And so we do need to walk right. Walk righteously. And as soon as you see that you're not, then change that part. But it doesn't take long to change. Pentecost, it means 50. 50 days after Passover. And it also means festival of first fruits. Some call it a festival of weeks. 50. Like so many weeks, seven weeks maybe. It is believed to be the weekend. Pentecost is believed to be the day that the Lord showed up on the mountain and gave them the law. Is after they came out of Egypt. And then so many years later, the uh, what's the first fruit? It's the first part of something. Yeah, the first part of something is a first fruit. And so it's interesting that at the festival of first fruits, where they were supposed to bring their first fruits as an offering to the Lord, that that's the day the Holy Spirit came within and upon people. I think it's just so fascinating. Jesus as the firstborn, you and I as the manyborn, many firstborns, secondborns, whatever. You understand, Jesus was first, we're next. And so, on that day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, you know, the Holy Spirit in you and the Holy Spirit on you is for two different purposes. The Holy Spirit in you is to lead you, to direct you as a down payment and a seal upon you and in you. The Holy Spirit upon you is not for you at all. It's for those around you. It's to empower you to be a witness. And you can see this, the, the difference clearly. We're not going to take the time to um, go through it. I'll just point out a few scriptures to you. In John chapter 20, Jesus shows up in verse 21. He, now this is after He had... Um, well, if you back up to verse 1 of chapter 20, it says on the first day of the week. So that was on the day he had resurrected. And um, now you skip all the way down to verse 21. They're all gathered together in a room. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, uh, peace, actually, 
Uh, let's go to verse 19. The first evening of the first day of the week, so it's still the same day, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because of their fears of the Jews. Then Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side, so the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So do they now believe in the Lord as resurrected? Yes, they've seen him. They believe. So it is only, Corinthians tells us in 2 Corinthians that it is only in the Lord that the veil of our mind is removed. And it's when you believe that is when the God of this age's blinders are taken off of your, off of your mind. So in verse 21, Jesus said to them again, so they now believe. See, if you hold your finger here and you back up to John 16, uh, John 14, Verse 16, Jesus is talking to the disciples. He said, I will ask the Father and He will give you another comforter to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world, everyone say world, is unable to receive Him because it doesn't see Him or know Him. But you do know Him because He remains with you and will be, that's future tense, in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. So he is saying that the Holy Spirit is going to come and be in you. But he's also saying that the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. And the only way to not be the world is to believe on Jesus. Now you are able to receive the Holy Spirit, not before. So here in chapter 20 where we were reading, they now believe on the Lord Jesus. Verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, and as the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Any time in Jesus' earthly walk, did he say something like this, receive something, and they not receive it instantaneously? They always received immediately. Or maybe he gave them instruction, walk across town and wash in this particular place, and then you will receive, and they'd receive. So when Jesus said it, it would happen. So when he says, receive the Holy Spirit, they now have the Holy Spirit. This is before his ascension. This is before the day of Pentecost. Because they have believed on Jesus as the resurrected Lord, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ it's called, has now come and dwelt in them and lives inside of them. And back in chapter 16, it tells us what the role of the Holy Spirit is going to be. In chapter 16, he said it's for your benefit. In verse 7, it's for your benefit if I go away, because if I don't go away, the Comforter will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then he goes down and, and he tells them in verse 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, he, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. That is why I told you that He takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. So we see that the Holy Spirit within is to lead, to guide 
the individual to lead you into all truth. First John says like this, you don't need a teacher because you have the Holy Spirit on the inside of you to teach you. As you read the Word and as you hear teaching that it's measured, the Holy Spirit on the inside of you is the one that's opening it to you. Clearly, He wasn't doing away with teachers because we're instructed to teach and to hear from teachers. Alright, so that's the Holy Spirit in you. So if you go over to the book of Acts in chapter 1, now you will see the whole, what the whole role of the Holy Spirit is on you. Actually, let's go to Luke first. You know, Luke wrote Acts. Let's go to the last chapter of Luke. And Dr. Luke, he was a physician. He wrote this. He says in chapter 24, well, if you read in verse 1, it says on the first day of the week. So same chapter as what we had read in John 24. So now fast forward to verse 36. As they were saying these things, he himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. And Why are you troubled, he asked them. Why do doubts arise in your heart? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they still could not believe because of their joy and were amazed, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. And then he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. See, the prophets and the Psalms are not just poetry, but they they must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. This is where he had breathed on them, apparently. It doesn't say here that he breathes on them. It says it differently. He says he opened their minds. In John, it says he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? Guide you into all truth. That can only happen when your mind has been opened. So that is the circumstance here. That's what happened. But by someone's... Luke's account rather than John's account. Now listen to what he goes on and says. In verse 46, he also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending the the, literal translation is upon you. I am sending on you what my Father promised. As for you, stay in the city of Jerusalem until you are empowered from on high. Some translations say endued with power from on high. Endued with power means clothed with power. Like a garment. It's something that is tangible, something that is real. And he's saying, go back to Jerusalem. Now, they've already received the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathed on them. So they've received the Spirit of Christ within them because they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Holy Spirit has not come upon them. That part hasn't happened yet. Now you can go to Acts chapter 1. And let's look down here in verse 4. 
While he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, they had already received the Spirit of Christ on the inside of them as the seal, as the deposit, guarantee of life eternal within them. But, they had not been immersed in the Holy Spirit. It's completely different to have a little bit of water in the boat or have the boat be full of water. Right? Verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, at this time are You restoring the kingdom to Israel? And He said to them, It is not for You to know the times or seasons that the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has, that's past tense, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Not in you, but on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here you now see the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. To empower them to be the witness that the Father needed them to be. The Holy Spirit within you is to lead you and guide you into all, all truth. The Holy Spirit on you is to empower you to witness effectively. To empower you to do the work of the kingdom. One is on the inside so that you know things. The other is on the outside to embolden you. So then He ascends up into heaven and you see that at some point this wasn't long after it was just a couple days verse 1 of chapter 2 when the day of Pentecost had arrived they were all together in one place that doesn't mean they were locked up in a room somewhere together if you read through chapter 1 and chapter 2 they were coming and going so there was a period of time of a couple days where they were in unity, doing something, seeking the Lord, waiting upon the Lord. Now let me say this, nowhere else in Scripture do we have people waiting to receive the Holy Spirit. Only here, at the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You do not have to tarry, like some people call it. You don't have to wait and wait and wait and wait for the Holy Spirit to come on you. Like, this is an example that is used. They say, well, you know, in the upper room, they had to wait for the Lord to come. Well, you don't have to wait. And you go through the rest of the book of Acts and you see it again and again and again. They came to prayer to the Lord. They laid hands on them and boom, He would, he would arrive there. In fact, you know, Peter, we were talking about him and that bed sheet and Cornelius and all of that earlier. Well, the Lord interrupted his very short sermon. I mean, he had just started preaching. He was only a couple paragraphs in and the Lord goes, boom, on them. Because they had believed. So here, the day of Pentecost had arrived. They were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly a sound like a violent rushing wind came from heaven. It wasn't wind, but it sounded like it. It filled the whole house where they were staying. Or where they were sitting is the literal translation. And tongues like flames of fire, doesn't mean it was fire, but tongues like fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled 
with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. Now there was quite a ruckus that happened. People from all over the city came to hear what was going on. I don't know where they were together. Uh, Many scholars believe it was at the temple, at an upper room at the temple. Because they would go there to pray. But at any rate, people came from all over the place and all these people that are standing there, they have all been, 120 in this room, have been clothed with power to preach the gospel. So the power is present. The emboldening Spirit of the Lord is on them to preach the gospel. There's this whole group of people, they're even saying things in tongues, they're prophesying and acting like a bunch of drunk people because people showed up and thought they were drunk. They accused them of being drunk. They didn't accuse them of snorkeling. Do you know why? Because nobody was acting like a snorkeler acts. But they did accuse them of being drunk. Why? Because they must have been acting like drunk people. You can't escape that. So all these people show up, all this is going on, and nobody's getting saved. Nobody's getting saved. Not yet. Nobody's getting saved. Until Peter begins to preach. And Peter preaches the gospel. And it is the empowering Spirit of God that is on him that both gives him the words to speak and makes the hearer's ears be open to that gospel. And 3,000 of them come into the kingdom that day. This is what the power of the Holy Spirit does for the person who is a witness. Because that's what Peter starts to do. He just starts to tell about how he, what he witnessed. Right? And he starts to proclaim. And then all the way down in verse 33, he says, since he has been exalted in chapter 2, exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out. It's what you both see and hear. And then he told them to repent and be baptized. And they would too receive this promise of the Holy Spirit. And man, revival takes place. And you can begin to flip the pages through your Bible and you begin to see time after time where this happens in chapter 4 and in verses 29 through 31. This is a miracle that happened. Peter and John, they get hauled off to prison. Now they get reprimanded by the government, said don't preach anymore, don't do this anymore, which they responded, well, we're going to obey God, we're not going to obey you. So they release them, they go back to their people and they pray. And at in their prayer... It says, now, they they were saying to the Lord, now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your word with complete boldness. While you stretch out your hand for healing signs and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy son, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's word with boldness. The Holy Spirit upon you will give you boldness. The Holy Spirit in you leads and guides you and says wear this shirt don't wear that one but the Holy Spirit on you will give you the boldness and to be the witness out there when someone asks you about that shirt if you just page over to chapter 8 here's another example of the Holy Spirit 
and salvation being two different events. This is eight years after the day of Pentecost. Eight years. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the infilling of the Holy Spirit was not just for the first month the church was getting started. This is eight years later. And Simon, uh, persecution comes. And so Philip, in in verse 4, so they all went scattered. And they went about proclaiming the word. And Philip went down to the city in Samaria and preached the Messiah. He's preaching Jesus to them. The Holy Spirit's on him. He is empowered to preach the gospel. The crowd paid attention with one mind to what Philip said as they heard and saw the signs he was performing. That is the Holy Spirit on him. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. And then there was Simon the sorcerer. And it says even he believed in verse 12. It says, uh, but when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he went around constantly with Philip and was astonished as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. This was done because the Holy Spirit was on him. Now, here's the fascinating thing. In verse 14, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed God's word. Now remember, Samaria is the Samaritans. When they heard that they had welcomed God's word, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Well, if the Holy Spirit coming on you is the same thing as Him coming in you when you believe, they wouldn't have had to do this. Verse 16, for He had not yet come down on any of them. Notice it says on, not in. He had not come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. If you go to chapter 10, that was where Peter and Cornelius, this is now 10 years after the beginning of the church, and Peter is preaching in chapter 10. He starts his sermon in verse 34. And he makes it down to verse 43. That's one paragraph. It's a very short sermon. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the words that were just written. It doesn't say while Peter went on and spoke many words. But while Peter had just started this message, it says the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the word. The circumcised believers, that was the Jews who had come with Peter to bear witness that Peter, you know, why he went there, because they were breaking the rules by being there. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Here's how they knew. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and declaring the greatness of God. Then Peter responded, Can anyone withhold water and prevent these from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, here it says that the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the Word. So they believed at that moment. That was when they believed. And then... As soon as they believed and the Holy Spirit was in them, they were now a candidate for Him to come on them as well. And they didn't even lay hands on them at this point. They hadn't even prayed. They hadn't even been baptized yet in water. And 
the Holy Spirit just comes into the room. So sometimes the Holy Spirit was given at the laying on of hands. Other times it was like at the moment of their salvation. They got saved and the Holy Spirit moved in and on. Now, let's go to about 20 years after the day of Pentecost. About 10 years after that event. Chapter 19. This is 20 years after the beginning of the church. While in verse 1, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul, traveling through the interior regions, came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? This is the oddest of questions if it's an event that happens when you receive Jesus as your Lord, that you also get the Spirit in and on. He would not ask the question, did you receive when you believed, if it was all just the same event. So he asks the question, and no, they told him, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Well, there's a reason for that, because they also did not know about Jesus. If you'll just keep reading. Then, with what baptism you were... Uh, then with what baptism were you baptized, he asked them. With John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's bap baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus. Oh, and hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So now they're baptized. Now the Holy Spirit is on the inside of them. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak with other tongues and to prophesy. And there were about 12 men in all. This is 20 years after the day of Pentecost. The reason I lay it out to you this way is because many of the same men that were in that upper room at the initial infilling of the Holy Spirit were in these other events where, and there was a number of events in there that we did not read where it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and glorified God. So it, even though there is a first time for you, there is not the only time for you. There can be an initial infilling or baptism of the Holy Spirit coming on you, but then there, there can be many after that of Him coming on you again and again and again. And the mark that you will see again and again as you read through Acts, what would happen when the Holy Spirit comes on them? There would be boldness. They would often prophesy. They would usually speak in other tongues. And they would glorify the Lord. And whenever this would happen, you would see the church grow because of the boldness that was on them. So for you and I, Pentecost Sunday today, I believe that the Lord is not looking to have a weak church now any more than He was looking to have a weak church then. He wants us to be empowered to do what He has directed us to do. So if you would like to have the Holy Spirit on you today, to empower you to be His witness, to be what He has designed you to be, to walk in evangelism, to walk in encouraging each other, to walk in expanding the kingdom of God, I just invite you to stand where you're at. And we're going to pray and the Lord's going to come on you again. Or maybe it's the first time. If I had been sitting, I wouldn't be standing. So consider me standing.
yesterday I asked the Lord, I said, Father, what do you want to do tomorrow when we gather together? He said, I want to draw near you. The Lord wants to draw near you. The Word says if we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. Jesus said, if you ask for the Holy Spirit, the Father will give the Holy Spirit. That's in Luke chapter 11. So Father, I ask you right now for the Holy Spirit upon us. Fill us full, Lord, with your Spirit. Just lift your hands up and say, I receive, Lord. Fill me full and overflowing with your spirit I yield myself to you for your service to be your mouthpiece to do the work you've given me to do so empower me Lord I thank you Lord I thank you Lord I thank you Lord for your Holy Spirit I bless you Lord I exalt you Jesus we worship you Jesus Worship you, Jesus. Fill us full, Lord. You heard him. Just come upon them and counter each person and enable them to be your witness, Lord. Your witness, your mouthpiece. Spirit is in the feeling. Sometimes you feel things. Sometimes you don't. Peter, he didn't walk on the water until he stepped out of the boat. It was then that the power was evident. The power was not visible to everyone watching until Peter took an action. In Acts 14 where Paul is preaching and there's a lame man that says he was lame from birth. And he's, he, as he heard the words that Paul preached, it says he had faith to be healed, but he was still lame. The miracle working power of God was on him, but he was still crippled. He was not walking, he was not leaping, he was still lame. It only became evident to everyone else when he stood up. Paul, perceiving and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said in a loud voice, stand up. And the guy jumps up. And the place went berserk. Why do I say that? Because here in this room, you can be a witness to each other. Out there is where you really need the power. It's at the prompting of the Lord. Step out on the water. And the power of God will meet you in that moment there. And He will empower and embolden you in that moment as you step out. As you as the lame person jump up. It's then that you need the power not sitting here. 
to be a witness. Are you understanding me? So believe that you have received. Empowering Holy Spirit to be a witness of the goodness of Jesus. I invite you to encourage each other downstairs as we have a time of finger foods and encouragement. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Church of the Word International here in Landisville, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for coming. We're glad that you're all here on Pentecost Sunday. Glory to God. I'd like to encourage you in the Word of God for our worship this morning. In Acts 13, 2, it talked about the early church ministering unto the Lord. What does that mean? When we minister to the Father and the Jesus, Holy Spirit, we give them worship. We honor them. We declare with our lips, you are a good God, a Father, a good Father, a faithful Father, powerful, almighty. You're describing who he is. And when we do that, it's like the backbone of our Christian living. Praise and worship is such a spiritual weapon in the spirit realm. It's more powerful than we really realize. So when we minister to him in spirit and truth and bring the word of God out of our lips like a two-edged sword, it does damage to the kingdom of darkness and it empowers your walk with God. Praise and worship is so powerful when you're in something, when you're not in something. It's just great to do all the time. It, it's powerful. So let's, let's all stand up together. I'm going to speak the word of God. Let us enter. See, we're entering in this time of worship. Let's enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Let us be thankful. Be thankful. God is your God. You're a child of God. You're in the kingdom of God. There's so much to be thankful for. Be thankful to him and bless his name. Let us praise the Lord. See, you've got to praise the Lord. Don't look to your neighbor to praise the Lord. You praise the Lord. You lift up your voice. You honor the declaration. I praise you, Lord. I honor you. I worship you singing praises to him, making a joyful noise. If you don't think you can sing, you can shout. You can make a joyful noise unto the Lord. He's listening. He's waiting to hear your worship and praise. Our God is wonderful in counsel. Our God is wisdom and understanding and strength. Our God is excellent in working. Glory be to God forevermore. Let's give him the glory this morning for how wonderful our Father is. Hallelujah.
Good morning, everyone. Good morning. <laughs> All right, we are just a portion of our kiddos up here. Um, last week, we decided we're going to pull together some things that we have been learning, and we wanted to share it with you this morning. So we're going to start with our preschool, and then our juniors will share something, and then our elementary will help lead us in a song.
kindness. Joy. Alright, so this is not all of our class, but these are some of them, and we've been talking about the fruits of the Spirit. Last week we concluded in saying, the fruits of the Spirit, we can't do them by ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit to be our helper to produce those fruits in our lives. Okay. Self-control. Self-control is choosing your spirit instead of your flesh. Self-control is a God control. Patience is being constant, not wavering in spite of circumstances. Patience is faith at work. Joy is like happiness, but like five times better. You, you can have joy in all things, and joy helps you not pity yourself. Goodness is different than kindness. Goodness is giving to others. Goodness is a fruit of the Spirit. Love. Love, I love my mom and dad because they take care of me. They wash my clothes. They make me food. Okay, we're going to do the Fruits of the Spirit song. How many of you know that? Fruit of the Spirit is not coconut. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay, everyone has to sing, okay? All right. Even the adults. All right. Not a coconut. Fruit of the spirit is not a coconut. If you want to be a coconut, you might as well hear it. You can't be a fruit of the spirit because the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self control. The fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self control. Love, joy, peace. Thank you. Y'all did a great job. How about we give a hand clap to all those that help in the children's ministry? You guys are making a tremendous difference in the lives of our kids, and we thank you for it. Well, welcome to CWI this morning. It's good to see everyone here. And we would like to welcome those of you that are with us um, as a guest. So if you're here as a guest this morning, you raise your hand so we can recognize you and welcome you. We have a few in the back. Welcome to Church of the Word International. So our ushers are handing you an information card. If you would like to fill that out and pass that in the basket when it goes by, if you have any prayer requests or anything like that, you can 
um, list them there, and we would be happy to pray with you and believe God with you. Um, If you need a cash envelope for your giving, you can raise your hand. The ushers will see that you get one. If you're giving by credit card, do fill out all the blanks. And we are going to return the tithe to the Lord this morning. You know, we should never view tithing as a portion of our finances or income that we're doing without. We're not giving away money because God is not a taker, all right? He is a giver. And if there would be something that he would require of us, it's because there's always blessing on the other side. And I want to look at a story in uh, Luke chapter 18. Many of you know this story. It's a well-known story, the rich young ruler... And he asked Jesus, he said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And we know what Jesus said to him, among other things, he said, you know, sell what you have and give to the poor. Now, right here, this verse, many denominations, many people in in Christendom have taken this and established a doctrine of, see, you got to be poor to be godly. This is a a poverty mentality, poverty doctrine has been built on that scripture. See, he's, Jesus said, sell everything. Not supposed to have anything. Give it all to the poor. Is that what he's saying? Well, those of you that have come through our home groups know some scriptures at the very, one of the very last sessions. We went through a lot of scriptures on giving to the poor. What does the scripture say happens for those that give to the poor? Well, Proverbs says, those who are generous to the poor are blessed says that giving to the poor honors God. Uh, Proverbs 22.9 tells us that those who give, again, give to the poor are blessed. So what was Jesus saying to the rich young ruler? Was he saying, give away your stuff, come on, be poor, or you ain't going to get to heaven? No, he was, it was blessing. So I want to read to you, in addition to all the scriptures that we have on, on God's posture towards those who Uh, consider the poor and give generously to the poor. In addition to that, this is what Jesus said to him after he walked sorrowfully away, like, dude, I can't do that. You're asking too much. You know, God just takes from me. Can't do that. This is what Jesus said to the disciples who were saying, you know, wow, how can anyone be saved then? You know, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, like, we're going to put emphasis here. There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children. In other words, anything that I would ask you to lay down, any best friend that I would ask you to separate from, any hobby, any career, anything that I would require of you for the sake of the kingdom, says we will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. See, I say all that because God is not a taker. Anything he would require of you, there is blessing. So bring this back to the tithing. We get to tithe. We get to have supernatural help in our finances. We get, God has said that for the tither, that our stuff is protected, the devourer is rebuked, and the windows of heaven is opened. So he's a blesser, he's not a taker, and we could go over many countless scriptures that shows us and reveals how God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, and there's no turning from that, no shadow of turning. He's not withholding any good thing. So we give, we return the tithe to him cheerfully. We know that it's his, and we are grateful.
for this opportunity. So let's pray over our tithes and present it to the Lord. Lord, we just present to you this morning our tithes and our offerings with grateful hearts that we're not alone down here, that you're watching over us, that we're valuable in your sight, and that you see the things that we have need of and that your heart towards us is to bless us and to see us walk in abundance. So we just thank you that your promises are true, and we just call them so in the life of the tither this morning. In Jesus' name, and amen. And the ushers can pass the baskets, and the people will give to the Lord. Who can say Jesus is wonderful? Jesus is wonderful. It would all be pointless if it wasn't for him, wouldn't it? And as long as we continue to have him fill up our windshield and make sure that is what we're about, is Jesus. That's who we preach, and Jesus and him crucified. And he'll take care of the supernatural side of it, you understand? But just your act of faith, of, of preaching the good news, of telling the good news, of being a witness of what he's done for you, that act of faith will bring into the natural realm the supernatural. And the Lord will do His part. Well, one of the ways that we do that is our simple act of faith of telling the good news is by partnering with um, missions, endeavors all around the world. And if you look up on the walls, you see there's 34 nations represented on these walls. And these are places that Either we have personally gone or we are personally supporting financially. Um, 34 nations that need to hear the gospel. And of course there's none more dear to my heart than the one up here. The United States of America, right? And this is probably where most of our efforts are taking place. Yet Jesus said to the disciples that they would go to the uttermost part, right? So we re- realize that there's a lot of space on the walls yet to put up a lot more flags. I don't know, does anyone know how many nations there are in the world? Not to mention all the unreached people groups that are within nations, right? A lot. Okay, I'm hearing 140, 100 and something. So there's a lot, right? 195. Google. So we've got a lot of work to do yet. I want to read to you out of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Just a few verses that I'm going to give you how Paul viewed the people that were helping him. And Paul is writing a letter. It's his second letter that we have record of to the Corinthian church. And he had come there, he had done a great work there, they had sent him out to go, do, uh, to go do the work of the Lord, and now he's writing a letter back, and he had had quite the difficulties. He had come into persecution, he had come into all kinds of hindrances, both natural and spiritual hindrances. And so... He begins to, in fact, if you, if you look back like in verse 8, he says we were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life. 
So he was in a bad way. For Paul, the mighty Paul, to say, man, we despaired of life. Man, things must have been rough. And if you look later, the, in fact, the whole book of 2 Corinthians, the whole letter, I should say, is him making and using examples of their recent trip and all the troubles that they'd been facing. And he keeps referring back to it. And he talks about the God being the God of all comfort. And, and finally, as he gets toward the end of the letter, he makes a list of all the things that they had been through. And it's like, wow. I mean, you really would need the power of God to be on and in you to be able to go through those things and survive. And so he says down here, <clears throat> he talks in verse 10 then about how the Lord... Uh, well, in verse 9, he... He mentions how that they carry a death sentence within themselves and that um, their trust is in the Lord and that verse 10, how He's going to deliver us. He's delivered us before. He'll deliver us again. And verse 11, He says, so you can join in helping with prayer for us. So this was one of the ways that He expected the church back home to help Him as He is out in the field working was through prayer. You know, your prayer for all these places up on the walls, for the places that you've been investing into in the kingdom, your prayers will make a difference. Your prayers can be the difference between hearts being opened and closed, between divine appointments happening or not happening, between people having an ear to hear the word or not. And why would I say that? Well, we look at other places, other letters that Paul wrote to the churches, and he would say, pray this way. Pray that a door would be open to us. Pray that, they, that, that the Word would have free reign, free access into their hearts. And so he details out how they should pray. So one of the ways that we can help around the world in these missions is going to be in prayer. If you'll look down now in verse 13, he says, Now we are writing you nothing other than what you can read and also understand. I hope you will understand completely as you have partially understood us that we are your reason for boasting, as you are ours for boasting, you could add, because that's what he's talking about. He goes, then he goes on and makes a statement, in the day of our Lord Jesus. So he says, we're your reason for boasting. All those flags, all the places, in fact, there's nations represented on, that are not up on these walls, nations that we've been actively working in and helping in, and, and they're not up there. Uh, ministers that we support that go to, I mean, we'd have to put up another probably 20, 30 flags to cover the, the ministers that are going to those places that we support. And yet, here, we can... You know, the work that we do around the world because of the finances we send, because of the prayers that we pray, they, what they are doing there is a tribute. It's our reason for boasting. It's our work with the Lord around the world. Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, we out here where we're working are your reason for boasting. Look at what you guys are doing, he's saying, even though they were still at home, Right? They weren't on the trip with Paul, yet it was attributed that it was their reason for boasting, not just in the natural, but in the Lord Jesus, he goes on and says. It's an eternal work that is being done. So don't lose sight that just because you are here in, in the road today and not somewhere around the world that you don't have a part of what's happening there. He goes on um, and then says that you are our reason for boasting. Well, 
Paul had done the work there in Corinthians, hadn't he? He'd started the church there. And now what they were doing was Paul's reason for boasting. Look at the work that we have done. And in the same hand, they had sent him out financially. And now they're able to say, look at the work that we have done. In fact, Jesus said to the disciples right after he washed their feet, he said the one that is the sent one is not greater than the one who's doing the sending. The messenger is not greater than the one who did the sending. And that word, uh, the sent one, is the word apostle. The apostle is not greater. Paul is an apostle. He's not greater than the church who sent him. So the missionary isn't greater than the one who sent them. Why am I, why am I belaboring this point? Because it's real easy to think that's them over there and we are over here. But since the work that's being done there is, is being enabled by your hand, by your checkbook, by your efforts, by your prayers, you also have a part in it. He goes on and he says in verse 15, he says, In this confidence, this confidence of their boasting, I plan to come to you first so that you could have a double benefit. It's the word grace, double grace. You understand what the word grace is. It's God helping you. God doing something for you that you cannot do for yourself. It's God's enablement, empowerment to you. So he's saying so that you could have double grace and to go on to Macedonia with your help. In other words, he was expecting them to help him go to Macedonia. Then come to you again from Macedonia and be given a start by you on my journey to Judea. So they were clearly very involved and he expected them to be involved with the work that was going on around the known world at that time. And so, you and I are the same way. If you, uh, as you come in the, in the entrance door there to the left on the table, you'll see some papers and, um, from different, different of the missionaries that we support around the world. You'll see some of the recent ones there. We have, uh, there's constantly reports coming in. And I invite you, you know, if you are monthly supporting one of the missionaries, and um, reach out to them, encourage them, ask them, how can we pray for you this week? How can we be in agreement with you? What is it that you're facing right now? Don't, don't have, you know, Paul and, and the Corinthian church didn't have the benefits that we have today of, of social media and being able to reach out and, and talk to each other by internet and look at each other and, and talk to each other like we do today. They didn't have that. And so let's take benefit of it. Let's, let's use our means of connecting with one another to encourage each other and to further the gospel. <clears throat> so if you would, take a hold of the offering. If you need an envelope for your giving, um, just raise your hand and our ushers will bring an envelope to you. On that envelope is a place for credit cards that if you want to give in that way, credit card or debit card, you may do so. If you give by credit card, just make sure that you fill in all the information there because we need it to enter that in. If you're giving by check, uh, your information is on the check. You don't need to fill anything out. Um, and uh, what I would also say is designate where you want it to go. If there's no designation on it, it'll go into our general missions fund. And uh, out of that general mission fund, we support a, a number of different ministries around the world. 
Um, if you want it to go to a specific place, just label on your check or the envelope, just designate where you would like it to go and we'll make sure 100% of it goes to that place. So take a hold of your uh, offering unto the Lord and let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you that you are the great enabler, that you are our source, that you're the one who increases our seed, increases our storehouses, that you are the one that increases the seed that we sow. So, Father, I just look to you that you would increase what we sow today where it's being sent, that it would accomplish fully, that it would be used usefully for your kingdom. Father, I ask that you would bless those just according to your promise. Those that are sowing this morning, that you would return it again unto them wave after wave, that their seed would be multiplied according to your promise. Father, I ask that you would do all that you've promised about finances in this house, in the places that we're sowing. Lord, we know that we can put forth hard work and hard effort and it brings forth little value. But with you, if we look to you, Father, we know that it can bring forth a tremendous value, a great value, a value that goes far beyond what... Um, we see in the natural. And so this is what our desire is, Lord, to partner with you in this way, to be a part of the work of your kingdom all around the world, Lord. And I ask that you put it into each one of our hearts exactly how you would have us be a part of that, of the, of the work that is being done. I thank you for this in Jesus' name and amen. The ushers can uh, pass the baskets and collect the offerings for the work of the Lord.